Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Nandini, Fritzi, thank you very much for t- talking to us today. How are you both doing? I'm very well, Andy. Thank you for having us on board. Hi, Andy. I'm very well. Thanks for having us. Oh, delighted to have you. Um, we're focusing in this film predominantly on the Tide Project. And the Tide Project is so rich and wonderful, I feel it would take an idiot to try and summarise the various glories on it. And fortunately, here I am. So I am going to have a go at saying some of the wonderful things that are coming out of the project the fact that it's providing free, open access digital resources, I think it, it is a wonderful thing in and of itself. It, it feels that in conjunction with the work that you're doing and the urge, the, the educative urgency, the uh, urgency of this material in schools in particular, uh, feels so exciting um, to be doing this work in that format. I really love the richness of the teaching resources you're providing, um, including reports back from teachers on what it has been like to use the materials. I love the conjunction of historical research, linguistic research, creative writing, spoken word, music, photos coming out of your uh, salon, which I know we'll be focusing on a good deal today. And I particularly love the collaborative and transparent creative process with which you have met as a project, the pandemic. And I'm really interested to talk to you today about travel and migration at a time of lockdown. The, uh, the project invites us at one point to uh, stir ourselves a sherbet, a sherbet, I never know if I'm saying that word correctly or not, and sit down and immerse ourselves in the richness of your material. Um, and that is what we are doing today, and I'm very much uh, looking forward to doing it. Um, can I ask you both to introduce yourselves, perhaps starting with Nandini, please? Sure, thank you, Andy. That was a really generous, um, lovely introduction. Um, I have no sherbet with me, but I've got a cup of tea half drunk as well. Um, But um, I am Nandini Das. Um, I'm based at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm a professor of early modern literature and culture in the English faculty here. Um, But I'm here, I suppose, in my capacity as um, um, the kind of um, project director for TIDE, which Andy has just talked about. Um, TIDE came about in 2015 as a five-year project that was going to look at, essentially, at boundaries and boundary crosses in the 16th and 17th century before British Empire became empire precisely in the geopolitical sense that we identify it as now. And for something that is, for a project that is really interested in boundaries, it's perhaps ironic that a lot of what we do is about crossing those boundaries and people who have crossed those boundaries before. Um, So in terms of disciplines, in terms of engaging with 
creative writers and artists, but also, like you said, in terms of our audiences, people who are interested in these topics. We don't really necessarily make a distinction between what is research that sits within the university and reading that goes on at home or in schools. And that's been great fun. Yeah, thank you. I'm really looking forward to unpacking and exploring all of that with you. Um, Pretty, would you mind introducing yourself as well? I'm Preeti Taneja and I'm a writer, fiction and non-fiction. Um, I'm a lecturer in creative writing at Newcastle University and I have backgrounds in human rights advocacy, particularly cultural rights, and minority rights in conflict and post-conflict zones around the world. Um, what else can I say? I suppose I'm a digital collaborator, an artist, visual artist in that sense and a writer in residence at Tide for 2020. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, and you're very modestly not mentioning all sorts of other things that you do. And I particularly want to give a, sh uh, a shout out to We That Are Young, fantastic novel, which has quite rightly been uh, causing all sorts of waves in the last couple of years. Uh, congratulations and, and thanks again for joining us, both of you. Um, yeah, so Tide um, and, uh, and what we do with it. Um, I'm really interested in unpacking um, as much as we can of the project in the time that we, we have. I'm really interested um, looking at the resources on the on the website and some of the crossovers between the bits of the work that the two of you um, have produced there. Um, Nandini at one point uses the phrase um, invisible debate uh, with reference to the ways in which Britain does and does not relate to its own histories and, contem and contemporary moment. Um, and, and Preeti, you've talked about the quiet here, referring to specifically to Oxford and the cultural silencing that pretends that all we're doing is thinking. That's a particularly devastating phrase and a really important one. Um, and I just wanted to, I guess I'll start by floating an idea with you, I guess. I, I recently made a film with Satnam Sangare about um, his book, Empire, Empire Land. Um, and I'm fascinated by the relationship that Britain has with its own history. It feels like British people seem to be aware that the Judas happened and then seem to go into a slightly odd collective cultural amnesia after that until we get to 19th century gentlemen and maybe the Nazis. Um, so that we get this kind of weird creation of Britain as a country, we get the civil wars of the mid 17th century, and crucially of course we get the British Empire. Um, all mixed up in this period which Britain is doing its very best to ignore. And you guys have been importantly calling our attention to, um, Nandini as you just put it a moment ago, borders and border crossing before the British Empire becomes a, becomes a thing. Um, do you mind telling us, this is a really broad question uh, about the kind of broad circumstances of the project, but what, what is it like to do this kind of work uh, now, not just in a period of lockdown, but in the last um, five years? That's a really interesting question. And I think the answer, my answer to it would have probably been radically different if you had asked me at the beginning of the project from now. Um, when I started the project, and it's a story that I have probably repeated far more often than I ought to. Um, when the project first got its funding, which enabled us to put the research team together, um, that decision was announced a day before the referendum in England, um, um, in the UK. And that in some ways has been a shaping influence that has been an implicit presence in the conversations that we have had within our team, in the kind of inquiries 
that we have made within our historical material in the sense that the more you look into the history of England in the 16th, mid 16th to the early 17th century that we focus on, the two things that come up repeatedly is a constant questioning of what it means to be English and what role does this concept of Britain have within that Englishness. And Britain is very much a concept in this period, as any of us who have looked at early modern literature are deeply aware of, um, rather than being a genuine geopolitical entity. So that has that was always an overriding concern, I think. And the other thing that is quite often um, hasn't really been attended to, perhaps beyond academic research so far, um, is the level or the degree to which that whole idea of Englishness was deeply entrenched within international connections, both with Europe and beyond. Um, and identity quite often is built in opposition as well as in resonance with others. Um, and that's what I think has particularly interested us in our research, that sense of the duality of opposition and resonance, that there isn't simply a binary kind of um, infrastructure or a framework within which you can see issues of identity evolving um, within England in the 16th and 17th centuries. The story there is far more interlinked and far messier than we'd imagine. Yeah, thank you. All of these complex and under-examined uh, kinds of Englishness and, and probably kinds of whiteness as well. Um, and the, the confused ways in which the English pick out certain bits of their history and um, not others. Um, Preeti, as someone who came into the project in a, a slightly later stage of its life and was brought in as a, as a creative practitioner, do you mind telling us a bit about, about that experience? Yeah, so um, I was approached to take part as a writer-in-residence in sort of 2018 and then the, I think 20, early 2019 and then we started in 2020. None of us knew, of course, then that what was going to happen next and with the pandemic. But for me, coming into this is extremely exciting to see people doing, thinking about these issues, which I lived as a young person who was born here, brought up here, aware of the cultural silencing, aware of the gaps in the history that was happening at school because I was getting them filled for me at home. And so there's a disconnect between the authority of your home life and the authority and the value of your school education, where you begin to think, okay, my parents, and they, are very, they were very classic parents in some respects, Asian parents, um, who believe very much in the value of education and the authority of the classroom is extremely important to them. And to succeed in that world is extremely important to them. So you take that with you when you go into school and yet you're not hearing anything about what you know to be the history that brought you to the country, your parents to that country and to be born there. So it's completely invalidating everything that you think you know about yourself because you never hear about it in the place where your parents considered the highest authority that you want to achieve in. And so that can, that can create not this sort of um, splitting in the sense of, oh, you know, I don't know who I am, but it's a sort of internalization that you don't matter. And that is a tool of control. That has nothing to do with the human beings who internalize that feeling. It's to do with the external pressure. It's a curation. 
that puts on you um, of a certain kind of history. And the history you were describing is a curation of a white British history as a sort of triumphalist history, as an imperial history. And it's a very selective history. Um, it might be done very calmly and quietly and with textbooks that we consider to be canonical and, and literature we consider to be canonical. But I think, you know, when you come at it from two sides, you're always asking yourself where, where, what is, how, how come what I know is missing here? And where is the validation of my own knowledge? Um, you know, they didn't decide one day just to kind of cross the sea and leave everything they knew behind and sort of take root in England. It didn't. And so we, we have to wait till we're older to learn those pieces together. And I think that's a real failure of imagination in the state to think that if they don't control everybody in the same way, um, somehow we'll be we're treated as being dangerous as in our citizenry. Mm. You know, so these are kinds of cultural curations that, that treat us as volatile. If we did know this whole history, something awful would happen, but something awful did already happen. And that's, that's what we need to know before we can become equal citizens. And I'm not just talking about the black and brown um, people of this country, I'm talking about everybody, because when you talk about Englishness and you talk about whiteness or whatever, I mean, just like Englishness or being British or, what, or, or and so on and so on. I have a British passport, I'm British, and I consider myself English in some important ways. So even that language is kind of exclusive and it's just so ingrained. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, and talking of that internalization of mattering or, or not mattering and a, a creation of, essentially a creation of, of a racist past with present intent, um, this project has instead been juggling and cavorting with and doing all kinds of wonderful things with other kinds of mattering and matter and, and curation. It feels like a, a curation is a really good word for the work of the project across the board. Um, uh, Nandini, if I turn to you first, I, and I did a terrible job of trying to summarize some of the things that you were doing. Um, could you pick out for us either uh, one or two of the things that you're doing that feel important to you or um, why the mix and how the mix matters to the project? Does that make sense? I'll give you two questions there and ask you to pick one. <laughs> Um, that's that's great, Andy. I mean, you're you're giving me a selection and asking me to pick. That's wonderful. But yeah, I think for me, what was most interesting, and particularly because it came at a moment when we were all collectively thinking so consciously about it. Um, were two different strands and. One of those strands is keywords, which is our first significant kind of major um, academic publication from the project. Um, and the other strand simply was the kind of um, what our funding kind of framework calls blue sky um, research in the sense that they can't quite guarantee or codify the outputs of it. And in our case, that was our involvement with creative writers. And in some ways, for me personally, I think our interaction and collaboration with Preeti brought to the foreground what, what was particularly powerful about the conjunction of that academic research on keywords. 
um, which was very much exploratory. Keywords was started as simply as a research tool for us as interdisciplinary researchers, starting a project together. There were five of us from different linguistic and national backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different disciplinary backgrounds. And we soon realized that, you know, we couldn't really have a conversation about what we were working on collectively unless we really pinned down what we meant by certain basic fundamental words, words that we tend otherwise occasionally to bandy around, assuming that it's common knowledge and common agreement. Words like foreigner, for instance, or native, or even home. Um, so on the one hand, there was that strand which came from a real methodological need for interdisciplinary research for us. This kind of delving into the, the story that a word might tell and the, the changes that a word goes through, the changes that a word might help a society to go through. Um, and the other side was this wonderful, exciting journey that we, every year, we went on with our visiting writers when we shared our research with them and then simply had this um, luxury in a way of sitting back and having them reflect our research in the here and now. And that was wonderfully eye-opening for us. There were questions and um, comments from each of our researchers. And Preeti will probably remember there was one wonderful moment when she was with us, with the whole project team. And we were happily talking away. And it would be, it was a conversation that was punctuated by moments of silence because she would throw a question at us. Um, and all of a sudden it meant it's slightly shifted the lens through which we were looking at the historical material that we were examining, the literary material that we were examining. And that moment of shift is something that as researchers, we only occasionally you know, encounter once in a while. Um, and that happened quite frequently within those three or four days when we are having very intensive conversations, which was a real privilege for us as academic researchers. Yeah, thank you. Preeti, would you mind saying a bit about that from your point of view of encountering that sort of work? Yeah, you asked me about coming into this process as a creative writer, as a practitioner. Um, you know, I, I'm just... It, to come at something like language and its roots and to worry against that problem of how these words are translated over time is really exciting for a fiction writer because you do have the luxury of kind of going in and asking these questions and imagining what's happened in those spaces and how those shifts have happened and who was there in the room and and you know as a fiction writer because you spend so much time creating from not from nothing obviously but from bits of life and bits of archive and bits of people's real histories and stories examples of things you know and things you've heard and so on um you know you're always aware that you're changing the picture in yourself sort of like a quantum experiment and so you know for me to come into the research room immediately I'm not only dealing with the with the with the with the curation of material that these researchers have gathered, but the researchers themselves as part of the story for me. And the present moment 
where it meets the past and where it meets all of these different pasts and how as archivists, we're only as good as the people who made the archive in the first place. And so are we gonna keep repeating some of the silences and ellipses in that archive by only considering that? Or are we going to say, okay, we're gonna come at this from our own point of view as a fiction writer. Can we imagine um, a different kind of archive and put out some of the things that we're missing? And so coming into it and asking silly questions, really fiction writers questions like, you know, which of these keywords do you think um, change the most through the collaboration or um, do you have a particular figure from this period who, you, who you've got to know so well that they sort of they're sort of haunting you and you can ask these more metaphorical types of questions that um, allow you an insight into the process of making what eventually turned out to be the keywords at times and that's the kind of detail that I'm interested in as a writer how things are made. Yeah that's completely fascinating. Um, I can't remember whether um... The word English is a keyword or not. Preeti, you were saying earlier about Englishness itself being part of the problem here. And, you know, that transition of when Angle or English means recent um, migrants uh, to meaning the people we now think of as belonging here. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't think that was a keyword, was it? But uh, Nandini, you're talking about Britain being a kind of live concept through this period. Yeah, and no, that's a really interesting question, actually. No, English isn't a keyword, but it would certainly be something that is an implicit presence behind so many of our keywords, from um, native to citizen to exile. Um, and, you know, it's one of those cases, as you pointed out, movement and um, displacement seems hard-coded into the language, the texture of the language there. But also, I mean, something else that Preeti just said, uh, which reminded me that something that she captured so well, I think in the Tide Salon piece, the creative piece that she wrote, which forms the kind of fabric on which Tide Salon kind of rests really, is that issue of fragmentation. Um, those little fragments that we kind of keep shoring up, essentially, in our research. Um, and Preeti, you'll remember sitting through our endless agonizing about how we could, or should we even want to weave a narrative out of those little fragmentary traces of lives. Um, and lives lived, lives lost, and lives created and recreated through literature, essentially. And I think, what you did with your Tide Salon piece by a kind of bringing up that idea of the archivist of the future, um, who at once creates and plugs in or tries to plug in the gaps in an archive has been really wonderful. It's been such a kind of generative metaphor for us, um, looking at our case studies, looking at those individual micro histories of people moving that it's um, it's helped us to think about it in a very new way. I suppose we should say something about Tide Salon and what it actually is. Yes, um, it's an interactive multimedia installation made by ERA Films and built by Bankro and um, sort of produced by me and a curator called Sweetie Kapoor, bringing together a collaboration of three sets of pairs of British Asian um, and spoken word and musician 
um, practitioners to take the keywords and make a piece of collaborative music and spoken word poetry from keywords that they selected. So it was really taking um, the research that the Tide team had already done and making another language, another set of meanings from it. And we built it into this digital platform, this installation, which gives us the ability to drop through time and drop through these histories of language to this future world, which is framed by writing that I created for the site. And what it does is it mimics the experience for the user of being a researcher in an archive that they've stumbled across five years from now. Of course, a lot of my work is really informed by the kind of revolutionary poetics and the time code of King Lear. It's really much, very much in my DNA. And so I always think about this time as sort of circular and obviously in, in Indian culture and Hindu culture, which um, has a fascistic element and it has a very peaceful element and all of the other things. But the concept of time is very circular. So I think in those ways where I'm like, okay, in a hundred years from now, what are we going to leave behind? And the pieces of writing, um, which I did, are sort of three fragments, um, written pieces of found material written by an imaginary character called Eliana, whose name is taken from um, As You Like It. And the archivist has curated these bits of fragments and tried to work out the codes in Eliana's work. And Shakespeare's kind of name is lost and Proust's name is lost, but other writers have been remembered in a hundred years from now in, in the pieces of fragments. And I was very lucky because the Thai team are really generous with their notes. So they sent me all of this material from when they had been looking in the archives and they had been compiling the keywords. And I didn't tell them I was gonna do this, but they all worked it out that I just nicked their ephemeria. So there's bits and brackets in their own notes, which say things like, I'm, I'm misquoting, but they say things like, um, oh, I don't know if this is actually right or I should pursue this. And those are the bits that I was more interested in than the actual historical facts. Um, and as a creative practitioner, you have the freedom to, to cherry pick some of those things. And, and it gives you a sense of, I don't know, I don't want to say power, but definitely the thrill of making something that is left behind for people to decode and perhaps find meanings from that, you know, can bring Sappho into contact with what it means to be an outsider as a woman of colour today in contemporary Britain, imagining a future we can't even know what tomorrow is, you know, it's the end of lockdown. <laughs> um, it, 162,000 people have died in this country plus and we didn't know that a year ago today, it's gonna to come to us. So this, this piece of work has a lot of elegiac nature to it and it's quite mournful in a way, but I think positive as well because some of the pieces of music and the spoken word poetry that go into it really do push, the, push that sense of travel forwards and travel through time and, and through language and, and, and through landscapes um, that somehow all of these artists managed to capture through the, through the sound language and the soundscapes they made really love that thank you um there's something very exciting about the project's commitment to that notion of, of a circular time and of kind of stepping away from the linear way in which we treat history and often also the fact-based way we think about history history is a kind of um, various battles of knowledge um and i love the idea that uh, you're attending to those moments in brackets which is effectively you know the archival researcher going 
I'm not quite sure here. And that's exactly the moment there it becomes exciting. You talked earlier as well about worrying against the roots. I hope I'm quoting you correctly there. I love that idea of taking the keywords and worrying against the roots of a language and making another language. Um, Nandini, when creative practitioners and scholars um, work together, academics in particular often think of that as the creative practitioner being the beneficiary of that process. But of course, we often learn far more than the other way around. Do you mind telling us a bit about where this has got you in terms of your thinking on the project and, and more widely? I think one of the major things that it has helped us to realize and articulate is exactly that word, that co concept that Preeti brought up right at the beginning of curation and its relation to history. Um, there is such a temptation, isn't it, when we're looking at historical traces to think of it as an unmediated narrative quite often. Here is a letter. Surely it is only a letter and it gives us a fragment of time captured within it. And if we understand this letter, we somehow possess that fragment in time. Um, it's terribly optimistic, but it's also terribly deluded because we are never quite only seeing that fragment of time. That fragment of time is something we are always seeing from our perspective. Um, so if, if nothing else, one of the things that it has really foregrounded for us is our intervention and the way in which it changes and continues to change the narrativization of history and historical records in various ways. Um, the narrativization of our critical approach to literature, um, to methodologies, and all of that. Um, and for the wider kind of audiences and readers we've worked with when we've worked with schools, for instance, um, this is something interestingly that always get, gets picked on by students as well. The sense that history, there's a perception that history that you learn in schools is about facts and history helps you somehow to dredge up those facts from time. And once you get your handle on them, they can never change because, you know, as archetypally, we say facts are facts and they just stay like monoliths sticking up um, in the general miasma in a way. Um, but something that this has allowed us to open up conversations about with school, you know, teachers and schools and students is exactly how that historical idea of a fact is created in any given moment. Those bits in square brackets, you know, those archivists worrying about, should I follow this route? Should I not? Does it really mean what it means? What I think it means? All of those get so terribly pushed under by the time we come to a book. Um, so opening up that process has been exhilarating. Thank you. Um, and Preeti, would you mind not, um, asking a similar question really as to what, um, the, sal the salon in particular uh, has brought you. I'd be interested to hear from both of you as well about responses to the salon, if we have time to talk about that. But um, do you have a sense of where it's taken you as a, as a practitioner? Well, I wrote my first cuddle for this salon. And that is a form which is extremely difficult to do well. And it's a form that's so close to my heart. I grew up hearing them, um, people I knew wrote them, recite them, 
even the word and the idea of the castle is something that makes me very emotional. So to, to, to have the kind of space to think about how I could start press my own practice into service and push myself as a writer to, to form something that could say, to, to fit into Tide Salon and that was my first puzzle and it's kind of buried in there. So, you know, you have to look, you have to work a little bit harder to find it. But I found that extraordinary and exhilarating and I love this platform. Okay, so I, and the and the, the way in which it allows us to mimic the experience of being a researcher stumbling on this thing. But also um, when I use it, I really sort of feel like I'm exploring a mind, a collective mind. Um, it meant a lot to me to be able to bring these six artists together. Steve Chandra Savale, who's, um, who's, you know, Asian Dub Foundation, that was like a big icon in the 90s when I was growing up. And so it was amazing to work with him as well as younger poets like Z Ahmed and Sana and Sharma. One of them is, you know, involved in neurosurgery and research and things like this. So she thinks about minds and synapses in all sorts of different ways. And so it's a kind of brilliant way of... It, making something collaborative and collective, we had no idea what was going to come out of it. And I think, you know, in some ways, we mirrored a process which I observed in the Tide team, because they all come at this stuff with very different methodologies, and of course, there's different humans. And they bring themselves to their research and they start exploring stuff, but they're making keywords that, that will stand on this website together. And so when the researcher in school, or we don't know where they are, clicks on these links and reads these keywords, they don't know that there were six people in a room worrying it out from all sorts of different disciplines that are connected to history, like theology or science or whatever. And they don't know, you know, the collaboration that went into Tide Salon, but what they have there is the chance to explore in the salon that creation of collective consciousness is a little bit 2001. <laughs> and we're 10 years on from that or whatever, so. I think, I don't know if I answered your question, but you know, I brought a lot to of politics and aesthetics into this project, um, which I think characterizes all my work. And the combination of those two things and the fusion of those two things is really important to me. Um, and working with this particular group of artists was just really amazing. Fantastic. No, that totally answered my question. Thank you. And you're envisaging there a user of the materials that you you all have produced um who won't know the work that's gone into it but they will now if we're getting this video up on the website as well it's kind of glorious to think about these different kinds of conversations between the different kinds of material that you're producing um i don't know if you have an answer to that other question i asked which is about um how people have been using it and responding to it i know it's maybe not been up long enough to have that kind of information but you know one of the great glories of it is that empowering sense of an interactive experience where you can kind of pick and build your way through the the, the rich, richness on offer. Um, have you been able to have a sense of, of how people have been using it? I haven't because I tend to finish projects and move on straight away. Um, and I think, I think that as a sort of project parent, you have to allow the afterlife to do its own thing. And I tend to disengage almost straight away. Um, 
I, we, it was covered in our house magazine tank, which we were really excited about. They did a huge spread on it. And they, and then we had to have quite a long conversation with the editor um, about how to translate this digital platform in all its complexity onto print media, into the, into the magazine page. And that was really exciting, very interesting. Um, they just loved it and they got it. Um, they got its potential as a sort of way of circumnavigating um, I think Tom, the editor, basically, if I remember correctly, said something like it reminded him of the very early Wild West days of the internet, when everything was potential and the and the potential of what the internet could offer us creatively as a way of thinking about how our own brains work um, really was what people were experimenting with. And now, of course, we've got you know Google curating our searches and that advertising is targeted and all sorts of things. And we've lost that sense of, you know, we could just get, fall into this thing and explore and we're in, in control of, but it's also narrating us. Um, and so we got that back, I think, and uh, it was really exciting to have that kind of feedback. Yeah, thank you. It's narrating us. That's both exciting and terrifying. Um, Nandini? <laughs> Um, we we had some kind of responses, interesting responses. Of course, now when when you kind of go on social media, you kind of get a sneak peek into how others are thinking about something that you've agonized over for weeks and months, and that is absolutely terrifying, but also exhilarating sometimes. And we had some very very positive kind of responses, people talking about discovering it, which is exactly what we wanted, essentially. Um, I had a couple of really interesting conversations with students, um, secondary school students, um, in completely different lockdown, you know, chat circumstances, that kind of thing, um, where they, you know, I told them about this thing that I'd been creating and they had looked at it and grudgingly admitted that history and talking about history of the same time that, you know, is covered by the ever-present Tudors in schools can be exciting. And there were other things going on apart from Henry VIII and his wives. Um, and I count that as a win um, in the sense that it's at least hopefully opened up an avenue or a route of discovery for um, audiences and readers who may not otherwise be immediately taken by the 16th and 17th centuries, but will understand the resonances so many of these ideas that the artists and our musicians immediately got and, you know, Let's face it, as a scholar working on mid 16th century literature, there are not very many occasions where I can sit down at nine o'clock in the morning um, and talk to um, a musician um, or an award-winning poet um, who works on very con contemporary material about the exact route through which the registers of aliens were recorded in 16th century London. And that in itself was really exciting. I think hopefully it was productive on both sides, but it'll be interesting for others to follow as well.
Yeah, one of the things you generously share on the website are WhatsApp conversations and conversations behind the scenes. And the word alien is so wonderfully provocative to the artists involved, you know, wanted moment. That was entirely Preeti's idea of oh. recording those conversations. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I should probably say something about that. You know, um, I have a history of working in youth work and social services and social care with young people. And process is a really important part of that work because um, it's only through those collaborations that the final thing gets finished. And I think full disclosure on how things are made is really important because, you know, art is a process. It's a simplistic thing to say, but too often we think, oh, this finished thing and it stands as it is, almost like a fact, what we're talking about to do with facts. And so for me, this platform allows us to, to build into the archive of Tide Salon our WhatsApp chats, our messages, our miss outtakes, our cuts of bits of music and poetry that were experimental because, you know, these things didn't happen without drafts. And I think, you know, this thing is a living archive. And, you know, to answer your question again about how it's being received, I love the idea that it's just buried somewhere on the internet and some random person somewhere where I have never been is going to stumble across it and work something out from it that I will never know. I just think that is exactly what it's for, actually. Um, so, you know, it isn't that kind of thing where you, where you want billboards in Times Square, as it were. You want people to find it for themselves and go on this amazing journey and be like, okay, why are these two people talking about the influence of banging the sound of, um, tires banging in Trinidad and how it fits into this piece of music they've made about early modern England mm. and the word stranger. I mean, who knows what's going to come out of that for whoever finds it. Yeah, I love the, um, the travel language you're both using to describe the resource buried on the internet, um, circumnavigating. Uh, it's kind of fascinating to think about the ways, the spatial ways in which we're thinking about um, about this work. Um, I promised you that I would uh, keep this film to half an hour and I've done a terrible job of doing that. So I'm gonna ask this final question uh, very briefly, but um, we've been talking about the Tide Project on um, the project called The Bit Lit and A Bit Lit is interested in what it means to talk about literature. Um, and we usually end by asking contributors where that word sits for them. Um, you're welcome to answer this question as personally or as professionally uh, as you like. Um, but yeah, where does that word sit for you? Um, maybe if we start with Nandini, please. Oh, this is such <laughs> an interesting but also awful, awful question to ask, Andy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> ah, where does literature, what does literature really mean? I suppose for me, literature is encounter. Yeah. And, you know, that it probably isn't very surprising for someone who works on cross-cultural encounters that I see encounter everywhere. But literature is a way of mediating our engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't particularly, the more I work on travel literature of the 16th and 17th century, I feel deeply that the innate boundary that I had between imaginative literature and factual writing mm. is becoming more and more porous. Mm. Um, perhaps it's bound to happen in, you know, in our age of fake news anyway, but the early moderns knew that all news could be fake and probably was. Um, for me, literature is about that engagement with the world um, and an engagement which takes place 
with the optimism and the ambition of shaping that world in some way, which is a terribly kind of um, ambitious project for the human, ima human imagination or words to take, isn't it? The fact that we make these sounds or inscribe the script and we somehow hope that it's going to influence the world around us. Mm. But we have kept doing it for centuries and we don't get, seem to give up on that yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're implying that we all should. I like that. Um, <laughs> Preeti, how about yourself? Okay, what what does it? I mean, you know, you're giving me flashbacks to my entrance exam for sixth form. <laughs> I had to write an essay called I think the title I think the title is What is the value in life of literature? And I remember the title, but I don't remember what I said. But I do think for me this word is hopeful. It it's about being literate that's what it is it's about how to read the world learning how to read the world and it isn't about thinking you know people talk about fiction as creating empathy with with, with the other or whatever finding the other in ourselves and and I don't necessarily agree with that because bad people write great fiction <laughs> um you know all sorts of all sorts of um, personalities hide behind the creation of art and so for me literature is training in how to carry, how to read the world and how to carry that knowledge responsibly. And so for me, it's sort of the potential of reading and being literate as widely as we possibly can be in all sorts of different ways of thinking, translation, language. You know, I would never want to just have, to be literate in one form. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'm very sorry I gave you those flashbacks, both for your your own well-being, but also for mine. It's very, I'm very disappointed in myself. That's what I'm reminding someone of. Um, but thank you so much. Those are both really rich, fascinating, interesting um, responses. I love the idea of hopeful encounters uh, teaching us how to uh, to read the world, um, and that collaborative and collective nature of the work that you described um, is so fantastically exciting. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to our viewers now racing to the Tide uh, website, or if they're on it already, uh, racing to the uh, salon part of the site to discover it for themselves. Thank you very much, both. Thanks for having us, Andy. Thank you.